0: It's getting much worse, and it's getting much worse very quickly.
1: The
2: Sustainable
3: Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour.
4: Welcome to The Sustainable Hour. We're in the midst of Nadolk week, lots of things happening all over the country, uh, where we pay a special tribute to our First Nations brothers and sisters and focus on their achievements and the injustices as well that they faced. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We're recording from stolen land, was land that was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we hope that we wise up to the fact that the First Nations people of this country are the oldest living, surviving culture on the planet. And there's so much in there in that culture that focuses so much on community, nurturing the land and the community. And they've acquired that ancient wisdom from doing that for millennia.
5: Most important day ever. According to that family calendar we have hanging on the wall in our kitchen, the most important day ever happened last week when the tickets for Taylor Swift's concert went on sale and the entire country was so excited and I was quietly thinking most important day ever what would be the most important day ever for the climate maybe that would be the day when we all got to decide whether or not we want our government to take real action on climate and how is that done well we have this expression And we know what it means now because we have this referendum coming up. The decision on a big topic. So how about a referendum in Australia and around the world on whether or not we should declare this country in a state of climate emergency and then begin to act accordingly? Would that be so difficult? And would that not be an important day? When you think about it, why haven't we had such a referendum long time ago? One survey after the other comes out with the same result that between somewhere between 80 and 90% of Australians want to see our government take strong action, much stronger action on climate than they are doing at the moment. The world needs to be slashing emissions by 7% every year if we want to live in a just relatively safe climate in the years ahead of us. And that's not what is happening. Last year, emissions rose by about 1%, and it's predicted emissions will keep rising in the coming years. So we need, we the people, need to have a say on this. That's what referendums are there for. You could say, in a way, that a referendum is like a mega-sized giant citizens' assembly, isn't it? Because first we have all this discussion in the population, education about the topic, and then we give everyday people a voice on a topic that matters for all of us. Imagine the discussions that would come in media leading up to a climate referendum. They would be revealing and discussing that the reality is that what we will be voting on on a day like that is whether we want our kids to have a future or not. Sometimes life gives you limited options, says Roger Hallam who's the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion in the UK. Be poorer now, and your children live. Or be richer now, and your children die. Limited options. Accepting the brutal truth that the world we love has gone means accepting the truth that those we trusted to keep us safe have failed us. It means accepting that the situation is not under control and then taking responsibility for trying to set it right setting it right is to demand a referendum on climate in this country we can do that and if the government doesn't seem to really want to do that i mean they could have done it long ago then we need to make it an election issue we need to find candidates who will take this up as a as a demand if you vote for me i'll make sure that we get a referendum on climate let's start demanding that the most important day ever in our family calendars could be for the climate. Anyway, welcome to the program where we proudly deliver you messages that nobody wants to hear, including the all the headlines that nobody wants to hear about from around the world. Colin Market, OAM, what new terrible disasters do you have for us today?
0: Hello, Mick. Well, I've got some global disasters, of course, because the place is going to rack and ruin. And I was just thinking if you did have your um, uh, referendum, on the planet. If the way to get it through would be to, to have the question what sort of a planet do we want to leave for Taylor Swift's grandchildren? And that'll get everybody on board, won't it? But my roundup for this week begins in the UK, where King Charles III, who is also King of Australia, along with the Mayor of London, activated a climate clock, which will count down the time left for mankind to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions to prevent the earth from heating more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. That's the target that almost every country in the world agreed to meet as part of the Paris Agreement in 2015. But eight years later, the world is still not on track to achieve this. Thousands of global scientists have said that achieving this is vital to ensuring a safe and livable planet, Um, as even sticking to 1.5 degrees offers just a 50-50 chance of avoiding heating the earth beyond human control. So the new climate clock that they um, started in London counts down to the last possible time before it's too late for action. And the start warning was that there are only six years and 24 days left to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. And as it started last week, that's only um, six years and 17 days to limit global warming. There will be large digital versions of the climate countdown clock on display in town centres throughout Britain from this weekend and it's a bloody good idea I think we should put them on every town centre in Australia too just to remind people that we're in a countdown situation. Also in the UK the Church of England announced that it was changing its investment strategy to become climate and environmentally aligned. Not only will the church sell its investments in fossil fuel industries, it will support clean energy and ethical projects that will benefit mankind. Announcing the move, the church's statement read, we are committed to making a positive difference when responding to the climate emergency. In addition to reducing emissions within our portfolios, we also want to see the decarbonisation of the real economy. Now normally this wouldn't have been worthy of note on my roundup until I read the bottom line it turns out that the church of england's commissioners manage 10.1 billion dollars in endowment funds which means 19.1 billion australian dollars and here i should point out that um, Just think about how big a billion is. We tend to think it's just a bit bigger than a million, but a million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. A billion is really a huge amount of money. And that amount of money could change things globally. And it's a church that's doing it. 19.1 billion Australian dollars is today being invested in an ethical and responsible way in order to fight climate change. And that's worth noting. And it contrasts sharply with Australia, where last weekend it was reported that Australian federal and state governments provided a total of 11.1 billion dollars in funding and tax breaks to assist fossil fuel industries. Now that's a billion dollars more than the federal government committed to its Housing Australia future. It's giving more money to the fossil fuel industries than it is on uh, looking after the future of Australians by providing homes for them. The Housing Australia Future Fund, uh, which is supposed to solve the nation's housing crisis. And to add insult to injury, Australia has got 118 coal, oil and gas projects still in the investment pipeline and it signed a deal with several Asian countries for them to send their carbon dioxide emissions to um, where we will presumably use scientifically unproven carbon capture methods to store them. That essentially means pumping them into mines that are unprofitable and no longer being used. Meanwhile, wildfires still burn throughout Canada, which is having its worst wildfire season in history. Texas is among the hottest places on the planet. In Southeast Asia, Beijing is recovering from a brutal heat wave and the nations of Thailand, Vietnam and Laos are all enduring heat wave conditions that are breaking records throughout the region. Thailand recorded its hottest day in history at 45.4 degrees. That doesn't sound very hot, but when you take on the humidity, it feels like 54 degrees. Meanwhile, in Antarctica, the sea ice recently dropped to record lows for this time of the year. And this time of the year is the depth of winter for Antarctica coastal areas fringing West Antarctica are now ice-free for the first time ever. Siberia just had its hottest day in history, and this caused more than 60 polar scientists to issue an urgent call to action, stating their deep concern that further irreversible change is likely to occur uh, without the accelerated efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And as a final note, climate scientist Joel Gergis put out a report warning that an El Nino effect will occur on the second half of 2023, and that's now. She said that during an El Nino, the southeasterly trade winds that usually maintain warm waters to the north of Australia, they weaken, resulting in localized ocean cooling and warmer than usual water off the coast of South America. This releases more heat into the atmosphere, causing hot and dry weather conditions to prevail over Australia as our rainfall shifts towards the eastern Pacific. When all this happens together, we face an increased risk of heat waves, bushfires and drought over much of the country. And because global temperatures are rapidly rising, the 10 warmest years on record have all occurred since 2010. The presence of an El Nino will almost certainly set new records as the planet's relentless warming trend continues. As an extra, she said that if it occurs, it could effectively kill off what remains of the planet's largest living organism, the Great Barrier Reef. Now, I don't like ending on a gloomy note. As you know, I prefer to end on an upbeat note, but that's the way the climate news leaves us this week. So that's my report for the week.
3: Listen to our sustainable hour for the future
4: Our first guest today is Joey Thompson uh, Joey's a 16-year-old national organiser uh, with School Strike for Climate And in his own area, local area, he's the leader in the South Gippsland Youth Climate Action Group So Joey, it's a long time since we've had someone so young on our show, and we really welcome you to our. Yeah, age. thanks. Right, tell us about why does a sixteen-year-old—you should be out getting Taylor Swift tickets or something <laughs> like that. Why are you getting involved in, you know, in, in such a heady thing at your age, at your young age?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, what initially got me into this, you know, whole climate activism and social justice like fight is. I have a really, I feel like I have a really deep connection with nature and the natural world. and just seeing the destruction and literally the warfare against nature and ecosystems on this planet by the fossil fuel industry and by politicians that aren't doing enough. Just seeing that happen because of the climate crisis is just, is devastating. And like that feeling, like that just gun-wrenching feeling of like seeing like the bushfires, like ravaging forests and like, The destruction of like logging and all of that. So it's like, how can we do this? How can we let this happen? And we're just sitting by. And I was like, I don't want to be one of those people that just sits by and watches. I want to, you know, take action and do something and be a part of the change. And so I guess, yeah, I signed up with School Strike just over a year ago and now now I'm here. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But
5: what's happening, Joey, with the school strikes? It appears to me that the air is running out of the balloon a little bit.
3: Oh, so what basically what's happened is, you know, we had so much momentum in 2019, like school strike. It was massive. I think we set records in Australia for the amount of people mobilized, which is amazing. And it's fantastic. And then, you know, 2020 COVID rolls along and COVID just killed everything. I feel like a lot of things, but I'm really glad because the climate movement, is coming back and it's big and it's going to go crazy. And the big thing with school students is I think once, you know, we get ignited and something sets us alight and we have something to, you know, fuel us, then we are going to go and we are going to be massive and we are going to be, yeah, we're going to be like the number one player out there for, you know, the climate movement we're going to be massive. We just need that initial spark and it'll get us going, but we're getting there. What do you see that spark as being? I think it's all about, you know, building up momentum And I think once the ball gets rolling, then it'll happen. So we just, you know, you start small, but then, you know, eventually we'll get, it gets bigger. And so, you know, we've got smaller actions happening and then big plans for later this year and next year. And so you just got to get it rolling, you know, and get the momentum happening.
5: Let's hear about the plans, Joey.
3: Yeah, well, we've, you know, we've got talks about, you know, a mobilization date, like strike date sort of stuff happening next year and the year after that sort of stuff. And then right now, we're building back the national base, uh, national space to School Strike. um, And we're really local group focused. So we want lots of local teams, you know, grassroots, decentralized, to be taking action as young people. And we really want to empower young people to have a voice and to get up there and to do something about what you feel is important, because this is a massive issue. This is the number one issue affecting us as young people, the climate crisis. And so School Strike for Climate on a national level, we want to be able to support young people everywhere to be able to, you know, stand up and have a voice and then bring everyone together, um, you know, to have a big, big actions. On the subject
0: of voice, Jelly, um, you're 16. Your friends would all be 16 or 17, which probably means that by the next election, your voice will be a vote. You'll be 18 and old enough to vote. Now, as a general rule, when you have a vote, you have a free choice. But do you feel you have a free choice this time around? Or do you? Uh, are you as a group pushing so that when you do get
3: to vote, you are always going to vote for the environment? I think for me personally, voting like environment is probably and like climate action is one of the biggest, you know, the biggest influences on who I'm going to vote for in an election. Um, I'm lucky I just squeeze in. So I'll be able to vote next federal election, hopefully. Um, I just want to, I guess, with other young people, like obviously I'm not going to go around saying you have to vote for this person. Like, that's not what we want to do. We just want to be able to like, I guess, empower people to say like, what do you feel passionate about? And then I guess it's really exposed like labor party. Like they, you know, go out there and say, you know, we're climate action. We do all the good stuff. We're going to save the planet. And then they just approved a new coal mine, like get your priorities together. You are not like the labor party is not taking good enough action on the climate crisis. They're not ambitious enough. And yet they say they are. And it's really like, it's convincing people. Like you'll talk to people and they'll be like, oh, I thought the labor party, you know, was doing enough for climate action. And I think one of the biggest things is really just emphasizing that we need better from the labor party and we need better from, you know, the liberal party to on this climate action, because the climate crisis is not a partisan issue like it should not be a partisan issue because this affects all of us it doesn't matter who you vote for if you're a red or blue or some other one you're still getting affected by the climate crisis in australia impacts all of us and we need to take action together
5: Deuce media is out with a, a short little video once again they produce these short videos we played one last week i think we need to play this one as well it's about just like what you're talking about joey it's about labor and where they stand And uh, we do need to come with a language warning as always when we play a video by Juice Media. So if you don't like coarse language, uh, you'll be warned.
4: (laughs) Yeah, go and make a cup of tea.
6: Hello, I'm from the Australian Government, where it has come to our attention that many of you are calling us the Shit Light Party. And we'd appreciate it if you'd stop. Cause you see, it's not our fault. Remember that time we tried being not shit by taking not shit policies to an election? We lost. So we thought, fuck it. Let's try being a bit more like the Shit Party by adopting most of their shit policies. Let's try being shit light. And boom, we won. But don't worry, that doesn't mean we're actually shit light. we only had to be shit light to get into government. And now that we're in government, we have to keep being shit light. Because if we stop now, the shit party and their mates will say mean things about us. Like, Labor, Labor broke its election, election promise to, to be shit. And they don't have a mandate to be not shit. And see, you can't trust Labor to be shit. And so to avoid all that, we have to stay shit light for a little longer. Sadly, many of you, we're sorry to say, are not political geniuses like us and thus don't appreciate our cunning strategy of pretending to be shit-light by being shit-light in order to one day be not shit. That's why you 2D chess players are upset at us for rolling out shit party policies like opening up massive new gas projects and thermal coal mines in the final years we have left to take action, continuing to privilege private schools over public ones and voting with Dutto to protect pork barreling. To be fair we have introduced some not shit policies and anyone who who thinks we're just as shit as the shit party must have forgot just how shit they were. But that hasn't been enough to console the millions of you who can't afford food and rent. While we cling on to shit party policies like huge tax cuts for the rich, pretending to deal with the housing crisis, and refusing to raise job seeker anywhere near the fucking poverty line. Because of your failure to appreciate how all this shitness is for your own good, we now face a dilemma. Do we stay shit light to keep the shit party and rupert it off our backs? Or do we we become less shit to prevent millions of you who want stronger action on the housing and climate crises from deserting us at the next election. Between us, we'd love to be less shit. Some nights we lie awake and dream of being not shit at all. But we can't do it without you. We need your permission, a mandate, to be less shit and remove the shit-stained undies the shit party uses to wedge us. So friends, if you truly support us, tell us when we're being shit light. Stop patting us on the dick for it. It only makes it harder. Kick our ass and we'll (coughs) cough up not shit policies. Because if we take our shit light policies to the next election, chances are we'll lose a shit ton of your votes to not shit candidates and end up in a minority government, which would force us to be not shit. And we wouldn't want that now, would we? Australian Australian Government. Help us be less shit. Authorised by the Department for Soul Searching.
4: Thank you to all our patrons for making the Honest Government ads possible, especially our patron producers. If you want to help us keep governments honest, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Media, Or you can grab some merch
3: from our store. My call to action is just, this is a big thing. The climate crisis is massive and everyone, I feel like it's really easy to get so overwhelmed. Would this be like, what can I do? You know, it's these big corporations. It's these like, you know, dirty dozen corporations that are emitting like what? Almost all of the CO2 and greenhouse gases. And it's like, it seems like there's not much we can do, but I really want to emphasize this, that we have the power, we are the people, and we can do this. Like this is up to us as people to, you know, voice what we want and to go out there and take action. And I think if you're feeling down, if you're feeling like this is so big and just overwhelmed, the best way to, I guess, overcome those feelings is to take direct action, is to go out there and get involved with the group like, and do something awesome. There's so many places out there and people taking action, and it's so easy to get involved. And I really want to encourage everyone to you know, reach out to an environmental org like School Strike for Climate, like Extinction Rebellion, like Move Beyond Coal, and to get out there and take action and be part of that change. Because we need to do it together as people to create the systematic change that's needed to solve this massive massive problem
0: you say biking is to my liking my climate hero sacrificing that longer life thing that's just icing fit like a scars guard northern Viking walking not driving cars go faster. Cars blow massive carbon smoke backwards. Walking is better for cardiovascular cofactors, heart strokes, and cancers. Especially if the physical activity is integrated with the nutritional scheme. Extra beans and greens, and less red meat. Ancillary effect of living a mission free is we never settle for less, and see fewer premature preventable deaths. Climate change is anthropogenic, and yes, tackling it is bringing the health co-benefits.
1: The modern economy, which is built on economic growth, is powered by cheap energy. And the cheap energy comes from fossil fuels. So it's a remarkable success story. If you look back at it, before we started hitting the tipping points and starting to really fill up the atmosphere with too much greenhouse gases, you could argue that this unsustainable venture served us quite well, you know? It kind of gave really rapid human wealth creation, particularly for those who were lucky to be in the industrialized countries and stepped onto that journey. But now we've come to the end of that road. And when did we come to the end of the road? Well, we came to the end of the road, we think scientifically. Sometimes, you know, we passed 350 ppm, the climate planetary boundary, basically 1990. So it's the last 30 years that we have shifted over from this big resilient planet that could cope with the unsustainable pressures that basically subsidized our wealth into this phase where it no longer works. And now we are hitting the ceiling. We've been so long in this negative trend that now the invoices are starting to be sent back into the economies and we're starting to feel it. So the crisis and challenge is now. It's not far in the future, neither in terms of impacts nor in terms of action. But the good news is, which is also such an extraordinary development, which has advanced at the same time step just over the last few years, is that we today have so much evidence that the solutions are not only available, but they're also scalable, and they are competitive. And they moreover give better outcomes for us humans in terms of jobs and economy, for sure, but also in terms of health. When you go to solar and wind, clean energy systems, you clean up air, you have much, much better outcomes for human health, and you, quite frankly, also build up better human resilience to potential of future pandemics. So you have you know, investments in a much more robust and healthy future by moving towards these now available solutions. So what leads to pessimism? Well, it, it is that we do not see that all the countries in the world have stepped up and aligned their national mitigation plans with science. We know that we are moving along a pathway that will take us far beyond 2 degrees, up to 3 degrees Celsius warming, just by the end of this century. So that is a huge concern. Now, my message, though, despite sharing that concern, is that we should never give up. I mean, every 10th of a degree matters, and it's not, a, it's not an excuse at all to say, look here, my assessment is that I don't believe the political leadership will deliver, so we will lose the Paris target, and therefore, I will lean back and not, not engage. It's on the contrary, holding the line as much as we ever can, and that every 10th of a degree will reduce the amount of extreme events, droughts, floods, fires, disease, impacts we will be feeling, makes it worth all the way. And I would also like to again kind of emphasize the fact that we we are sitting, you know, that that's that's what's in in a sense the fundamentally most important element here that we know, actually, I would even argue we know that we're sitting on the winning narrative. We, we know that the sustainable, clean future is the only one that can give us the healthy, secure, future wealth-creating agenda we want. If you really want to deliver the sustainable development goals, it cannot be done with the current food system, with the current energy system, with the current way we are producing consuming and creating waste. It will never deliver for 10 billion people. It's impossible. So it's either we go sustainable or we completely fail.
5: We have also a report from our youth reporter, Ben Pocock. This time he's been looking into this, exactly this issue that we're talking about, about carbon capture and storage.
7: My name's Ben, and I'm 14 years old. This is going to be my last report for the Sustainable Hour. It's going to be about carbon capture technology and its pros and cons. Carbon capture is the capturing of greenhouse gases from pollution-heavy facilities like fossil fuel energy plants, as well as from the air, and redistributing it, usually deep in the ground. While this is a good idea in principle, it must be viewed with a healthy amount of skills. Three main types of carbon capture, post-combustion, pre-combustion and oxy-fuel combustion. I'm not going to go into too much detail about their differences or similarities, but as the name suggests, post-combustion capture is when you filter out the CO2 after burning, pre-combustion capture revolves around turning whatever you're burning into a gas and removing the carbon prior to combustion, and finally, oxy-fuel means burning your fuel in an environment with very high concentrations of oxygen making it easier to filter out the carbon dioxide after burning. What all these methods have in common is that they can be expensive and aren't anywhere near as sustainable as switching to renewable energy sources like solar and wind. Additionally, carbon capture projects are never capable of catching 100% of the emissions from a power plant or mining facility. However, that being said, Carbon capture can play an important role in our journey to carbon neutrality, but it must be used wisely and in moderation. We cannot allow carbon capture technology to become an excuse to continue with fossil fuel energy production at today's scale. One positive thing that can be done with carbon capture is simply removing the carbon dioxide that is in the air around us. After you've taken out the carbon from the atmosphere, you can safely inject it deep into the earth, or like some facilities are doing, you can create fuel that can be used in vehicles like cars. Because the carbon in the fuel came from the air in the first place, it is entirely carbon neutral. (music) Carbon capture technology, when used in conjunction with green energy production practices, has the potential to do a lot of good. As I said before, This is my last report on the Sustainable Hour. Before I finish off, I'd like to thank Mick, Tony, and everyone else at the Sustainable Hour for their help and support over the past three and a half years. You guys are the best. This has been a report by Ben Percock on Sustainable Hour, giving a brief overview on some of the workings and uses of carbon capture technology. Thanks for listening.
4: that's the last report that Ben's going to do for us he's just acquired a job and feels that he's he's not able to do it justice anymore so yeah we're really grateful for the time the effort that Ben's put in, into the his reports and it's been just been so uh, inspirational to see the change in him over the 3 years that i think he was primary school when he started and now in midway through high school, and just seeing the the development in his confidence and uh, technical expertise in in presenting the his work to us. So listen to, uh, yeah, we're just so grateful for for Ben's work, and wish him all the best for the future and whatever he takes on. But I think he might have a future in media somehow.
5: And uh, Tony, we should maybe mention that we've had apprentices, youth apprentices on the Sustainable Hour before who today are working for the ABC as, as news reporters. So, you know, things do start small and then they can grow big. Yeah. Uh, so the Sustainable Hour is currently now looking out for a new apprentice. So if you're listening and you're in the age between, should we say, between 12 and 15, then we certainly would like to hear from you.
4: Yeah. We could probably stretch it to 16-year-olds too, Mick, I reckon. (laughs) Not looking at anyone in particular right now. (laughs) Uh, Okay, our next guest today is Jacob Birch. Uh, Jacob is very much uh, into promoting native grains. Welcome uh, to the Sustainable Hour. Thanks for giving up your time to have a chat. Tell us about the grain situation.
2: Thanks for having me. Um, okay. I guess it's a big story to tell, so um, I'll try to sort of make it as succinct as possible. But, you know, we're talking about a 60,000-year-old story here um, where First Nations people across Australia were harvesting and consuming native grass grain. So we're talking about grains just like wheat, barley, rice, Um you know, we have the ancestral variety of rice in Australia. So, you know, all that rice you buy in the shops, all that rice in Asia and India most likely traces its genetics back to the populations in Australia. Like scientists, archaeologists have found, you know, intact grains of wild rice in those like 28,000-year-old layers of um, stratum in those archaeological excavations. So, we're, we're going back a long time. Um Yeah, but but for my mob, the Gamilaroi people of um, northwest New South Wales, southwest Queensland, we had semi-arid species that are quite unique, um, you know, not closely related to any of those typical sorts of cereals that you get out on the market. Um, These are long-lived perennial grasses. You know, like, I'll keep it on theme here with the sustainability sort of topic. Um, Perennial means that they don't live and die within one season, like wheat, which is annual. Um, so with modern crops, you know, you go through and you, you put your, your crop in and then it lives and dies within a season and then the ground's bare. Sometimes they leave a, um, you know, stubble retention or whatever. Um, and then they plant another crop year after year. Um, Whereas our natives are perennial, they're in there, they're in there forever, pretty much. Like we, we literally don't know how long they grow. We know 50 years, but probably longer. So you put a grass in the ground, it's going to be there for 50 years, two generations at least, but they'll be self maintaining too. And then because they are perennial, they, they are adapted to those cycles that we experience in Australia of those droughts and floods and fires. So they're tolerant to all those, um, different kinds of climatic extremes and, and weather extremes so but the thing is the situation with those now is our native grasslands are so badly degraded and we would talk about a situation with the great barrier reef or we talk about situations with like logging and deforestation um but we don't acknowledge the importance the significance of our native grasslands we have over 1100 native species of grasses and it is so difficult to find a nice healthy native grassland Um well, i live on the sunshine coast queensland cubby cubby country you cannot find a healthy patch of native grassland anywhere it is you know our grazing industry and pastoral industry is brought in all of these invasive grasses and now you can't find anything. You know, here we have pigeon grass. You go out west, you have buffalo grass. Up in the Northern Territory, ga- grass. It's just crazy. We're losing all of these native ecosystems that support all of that biodiversity. And when we lose our natives and transition to, say, buffalo grass in semi-arid Queensland or your country, for example, those grasses are then... um they burn more intense they they create more of a fire risk so when they burn you're releasing more carbon dioxide and more ferocity so not only burns and releases more co2 but you're also damaging the ecosystems where they exist because they burn with too much intensity so you're not only kill everything all the other plants and trees but you're also killing all the animals animals that take shelter under the ground because it just burns too hot um and you know, like our natives also sequester carbon into the soil. So we talk about, you know, we have to we have to stop CO two emissions. We we point the finger at the extractive industries, but we don't acknowledge the complexity of the issue that we face in that if we cut off carbon production, we're not going to fix the problem. So I studied environmental science and marine science and got a really good holistic understanding of the complexity of this issue we face you know our biggest carbon sequestration natural carbon sequestration is in our wetlands and it's in our mangroves and it's in our seagrass and everybody lives on the coast we've destroyed our mangrove ecosystems we destroyed our seagrass ecosystems um you know so just cutting off co2 is not going to fix this problem we need to also remediate our degraded landscapes because that's what holds the carbon and like you know we talk about amazon as the lungs of the planet that's not actually true the lungs of the planet is the ocean so we need to also be looking after the ocean because that's that's our lungs that's we go back far enough this planet didn't start out with oxygen and the first microbial, like single-cellular organisms, first sparks of life on this planet were in the ocean and they were what produced oxygen. That's what oxygenated this planet was the ocean. So we need to sort of talk about the complexity of this issue we face. Um, this that's a really big challenge.
4: What's the benefit? What benefit do we receive by getting the native grasses back?
2: It ticks all the boxes, I think in terms of benefits, you know, and, and I've just been, I'm building an enterprise at the moment. And when you start set, getting into that business space and entrepreneurial space, really, you are to talk about the economic gains of it. It's like, oh, you know, this is the economic benefit. And it's funny, like First Nations people is like, everything's done with a social and environmental benefit. And then you've got to kind of put the spin on it to make it economically beneficial whereas most people start oh this is going to be an economic benefit and then oh we've got to put our green spin on it um whereas this these native grasses the benefits um you know i started off in this space doing scientific research i I did you know multidisciplinary research and one of those things i did was nutritional analyses on these native grasses and they are absolutely phenomenal like i'm not kidding you they, they could be classed as superfoods and not superfoods just, just for one parameter. So you look at say something like blueberries or whatever the, that's kind of the, the antioxidant standard. And they say, Oh, are these, anything with a uh, higher antioxidant content than blueberries can be called a superfood. Well, our natives have higher antioxidants than that, but they've also got really high mineral content and they've got really excellent polyunsaturated fatty acid content and they've got really high protein content and they're anti-inflammatory and they're gluten-free and all these things. So they're just for human health alone, the nutritional qualities of these things is a benefit. But um like I was alluding to before, that environmental benefit, that sustainability benefit, you know, these are long lived perennial grasses that send their roots deep into the soils and where you find them is in those cracking clay soils. So, that's self-mulching kind of country where when you get those periods of drought and the the earth starts to open up, you get all, all that organic matter falling into those deep, deep cracks down into the earth and then the earth closes up again and you've got all this organic matter sequestered down, down into the soil. No, this is that country that they exist on. So, if we start putting these back and we have those natural cycles of drought and flood and fire, we're going to be – and they'll persist through that – we're going to be putting all this carbon back into the soil. So, there's that sustainability thing there. Um, You don't have to plough the earth. You know, we – agriculture, we plough the earth and rip it up and expose all that organic matter to the air and then that's what produces carbon dioxide it it oxidizes um you know but in that process we're also killing all of the life that lives within that soil and i you know i'd like to see this quantified but my theory is that we don't take into account just how much organic material say like carbon for example is stored within the living the living biomass within our soils you now we talk about how much life is in within just one handful of soil, if it's healthy soil. There's billions of living animals like microbes and bacteria within that soil, and that's all made up of carbon. So imagine millions of hectares of this stuff, alive, living soil. Current paradigm is we plough it up, we expose it to oxygen, we chuck a whole bunch of pesticides on it and kill every living thing in that soil, and then we throw a whole bunch of fertilisers in it and this the thing with this stuff is pesticide free, fertilizer free, and fertilizer is another thing with you know, even if we cut off carbon production with the extractive industries, massive like um contributor to greenhouse gases is the nitrogen fertilizer industry. So all of our crops around Australia, we're throwing all of this nitrogen on, on them, you know, like like CO2 is say one sort of molecular co2 is like this base rate but then you look at things like um n2o or something that has like uh i think of 300 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide so the the nitrogen that is released in that um fertilizer manufacturing process as it's so much more damaging and then you got methane as well, which is about thirty times more damaging.
0: It sounds um, wonderful, Jacob. But um, can you tell us—is there anybody growing it on a commercial, growing native grains on a commercial basis?
2: Only one person, one farming family that I know of. Um, and this is the thing with farmers: is that they're between a rock and a hard place. Um, I've heard stories of farmers who try to go to more um sustainable practices where they might destock to let nature revitalize and the government steps in and says, if you're not going to put maximum carrying capacity on this block, we're going to take your land and give it to someone else who is going to extract everything they can out of it. Um, but they're also up against it with the banks, you know, they borrow money and they have to, they have to do these practices to get the maximum yield. Whereas our natives don't yield like, you know, the Roundup Ready wheat. So, uh, you know, a lot of farmers are kind of like, you know, we'd like to do it, but we need to see that it's actually gonna pay the bills. Um so there's only one family that I know of who are doing it. Um, but but I've got a bit of support now to put our own crop in. So we're gonna try and find somewhere. Where we can lease a bit of land, we don't have enough money to buy land. Um, you know, it's still phenomenally expensive, even out on Gamilaroi country, which is semi-arid country. It's still, you know, you're talking millions of dollars to buy anything. But you've got um,
0: enough seeds to to put in a paddock of how big?
2: Um, you know, just look at two hundred hectares. Right, uh, it's it's not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but it's um. It's a start, you know.
0: Well, good because once you basically you've got to demonstrate to the growers that this is a much better crop and advantages. So you can really only do that by growing it and showing them,
2: isn't it? Yeah, yeah, kind of um, like a living laboratory. Yeah, so that's that's the idea.
4: Yeah, Bruce Pascoe is is uh, got a, a small venture on the northern Victoria. That he's he's hoping to, and he's he's providing employment for young courier workers to uh, to help him with that. So he's he's really keen. I think kangaroo grass is the main uh, product that he's looking at, and he's he's made contact with millers, people that process the the grain, and I think there's a, a restaurant cafe in Sydney that's producing pizzas using that. And it, he's come out with all sorts of figures about the, in the same vein as you were talking about the, the incredible nutritional value that they're finding. They've assessed that, and so it's yeah, there's big future there. And so much of Australia is semi-arid.
2: Yeah, it's probably important to acknowledge too that that stuff that he's selling is coming from Gamilaroi country. That's grain off our country. That's our grain that's being sold into those high-end restaurants in Sydney and Melbourne. And I say, we just need to sort of acknowledge that.
5: Um, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a very famous Danish restaurant that moved to Sydney for some months. It's called Noma. Uh, and NOMA actually stands for Nordic Food. But they, when they came to Australia, were looking for the indigenous Australian food because that's what they did in Denmark. They looked for the indigenous Danish foods, which is like foods that go thousand years back, the Vikings, what were they eating? And they came to Australia and they were in the beginning just really shocked to see that they, they were so hard to find anything. But eventually they managed to, and then they served these platters for people, you know, who could afford to pay $500 for a plate of food. And it had on it the finest indigenous grains and herbs and foods uh, that they had been able to find. What that told me is that there's something here where Australia is completely missing out.
2: Yeah, but we're, we're losing that. We're losing our foods. Uh, like our foods of abundance even, you know, because like I was saying, our landscape is so degraded. We're losing all of these species and and our country has been overrun with these invasive weeds, invasive pest species. You know, I've just been out on country recently and the number of goats that I saw, I was phenomenal and they have no fear. They're everywhere in plague proportions and You know, with goats, they will eat anything. And it's like we've had rain out there and and it looks sick. Imagine when we have drought and these goats are eating every little bit of green that's left. It's going to be a a disaster. So, yeah, like our native foods will become even harder and harder to find.
4: What are you hoping to achieve with your venture, your enterprise?
2: Um, you know, like, I'm not trying to get too far ahead of myself. Like I have a big intergenerational vision, um, but with this venture, sort of, like I say, five to 10 year plan is to be able to get ourselves property, you know, a significant bit of land. I'm not talking 200 hectares. I'm looking more like 4,000 hectares would be beautiful. 4,000 hectares back out on Gamilroy country. Where we can start to care for that piece of land and start to bring back all of those foods that we're talking about. And not just foods, Gimilu country is absolutely chock full of medicines and some of the best timbers in the world. Some of the hardest timbers in the world. You know, we have this whole abundance of, of, um, products out there that if we can learn how to manage properly in a sustainable way, in a regenerative way, in, in a reciprocal manner, where we're not just extracting, it, that gift is is received and, and a gift is given in return to country, then that's that's the aim in that that sort of ten year time frame to get that and you know we're, that we've already started that that motion now we've started taking those steps and you know you're talking about the Millers, you know Bruce Pascoe talk, talking to Millers and that I've been funded to set up a processing enterprise and put a mill, a stone mill, like here in Australia, and start to process these grains so that us Camilleroy people can take control of our grains that are coming off our country rather than shipping them a 1,000 kilometres to Victoria.
4: I get a sense that there's a network developing around Native foods by F- F- First Nations people. Is that happening?
0: Yes, and
2: no like so it it all comes down to three things i think is one capital you need the financial capital there to to purchase back land you know like we talk about i think it's now around 60 percent of australia's land mass is under some kind of legal like first nations legal tenure but that's not land that can be accessed for economic output so, you might have native title, but you can't go on to that native title country and and start an enterprise. You know, that doesn't allow any of that thing to happen. All it allows you to do is access land for, you know, cultural purposes. You can't go out there and put a farm on a piece of crown land. And then you can't go and take freehold land. That's, you know, that that narrative that came out of John Howard era. Is a load of rubbish. You can't go and take someone's freehold country because you've got native titles, a load of rubbish. But, um, so we lack the finance and we lack the land and we need to set up our governance systems as well. So like to, to self determine on our own aspirations as opposed to having to go to non indigenous entities to, to have that governance thing. And, and I say yes or no with the bush food network is that you have bush food things start up. But you have non-Indigenous governance people in their governing running the show and then they become the gatekeepers and then they, you know, they take it down that same pathway as maintaining the status quo. Like Indigenous people want to shift that paradigm and, and start to do business in a different way, start to get. Different outcomes rather than that purely like maintaining that same pyramid structure. Someone at the top, you know, we want to decentralize the, the way it used to be in this country. Power was not concentrated, it was decentralized, you know, and 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 there was very small groups of collective decision making and but it was all relational too, you know, you you had responsibility and and so that that kind of stuff is because we're talking about something so different, it's very hard for people to fund it. Um, And if you can't get funding, you can't get land. And um, yeah, when when you do get funding in land, you get people who follow those same kind of structures and systems who follow that same Western paradigm, who who end up in those governing positions. So, um, but I think there's a, I think there's a lot of people starting to, like in the First Nations community, who are interested in this and who want to shift paradigms and who want to be involved? Um, so we'll, we'll come, I think. Yep. Yeah. And there are networks. Yeah. There, there's people out there now. We're trying to, you know, like us speak to the Jar people with their kangaroo grass project, you know, try to maintain, you know, how can we have that network of support in the Noongar land enterprises and, you know, like Waminda Women's Project on the East Coast. Um, you now, we're still not very good at connecting in with the mobs in Northern Territory and, you know, central desert regions and all that, but, but they're doing lots of cool stuff as well.
4: How can we or how can people help make your dream a reality? People that are listening to this show maybe.
2: I don't know. Like, so... Someone non indigenous who was taking one of our food products, you know, is saying, Oh, it's important to acknowledge that this is coming from Gamilaroi country. And I was like, acknowledgement isn't good enough. You know, an acknowledgement isn't an opportunity if you just sort of wipe your hands clean and say, All right, I've done my bit, I've acknowledged the traditional custodians. But those traditional custodians are still suffering disproportionately, yep. whether it be health or incarceration or education or employment opportunities in Queensland alone like one in two 50 percent of first nations people in regional Queensland are unemployed or underemployed so 50 percent one and two people it's crazy now acknowledgement isn't good enough in this space you need to sort of demand that your native food product cultural products are coming from those authentic places with the story With that integrity so that you can know that the benefits flowing back to those communities so you got to ask those questions of the producer where are you getting this how are they benefiting now kakadu plum is a perfect example um native grains is a perfect example ask the question and um yeah try to buy that authentic product look out for black cladding that's a huge thing in Australia now. Black cladding is a massive industry, millions and millions of dollars flowing between entities that's supposed to help fix this gap I just talked about, and it's not. It's going between one massive transnational organisation to another massive international organisation, and it's like, yeah, it's another opportunity for them to, you know, throw money around and yeah so demand that authenticity i suppose look beyond an acknowledgement look Mm. for the impact today's
5: program if you've been listening through the entire hour we have met two inspirational guests here who both are being the difference i should say with the climate strikes and with indigenous foods doesn't that just show if we want to change the paradigm we need to be the difference we need to dare to be the difference.
0: Be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. I know the world's gone, mad. It's true.
4: Be the difference. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine
7: what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the difference. Be the difference. The star and the
4: future's watching.